Well, welcome back to another episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listener, dear viewer, uh, as it were, if you're joining us on the YouTube channel. Uh, if you haven't already done so, please head over to our Substack page. That's bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. Uh, by now, you'll be able to catch hundreds of articles from myself, Dan Denning, Bill Bonner, and Tom Dyson, all about everything from high finance to lowly politics and uh, plenty more in between. There's plenty of research reports uh, up there as well by this stage, and also many more conversations just like this, which you'll find under the Fatal Conceits podcast tab at the top of the page. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome back our macro analyst in-house, Mr. Dan Denning, who joins us today from the high plains of Laramie. Dan, how are you doing? Yeah, good. It's uh, been a busy couple of weeks, but uh, still blazing hot summer here, so no complaints. All right, yeah. As I sit here shivering in my uh, in my sweater at four degrees Celsius, <laughs> uh, mate. You and I were just speaking before we uh, jumped on the recording here. We should make a, a special mention to uh, a lot of new readers who have just joined us uh, over the past few weeks in the past month. So, welcome uh, if you're just joining us for the first time. I thought we might start with just getting up to speed with. Uh, where we've been both with the project and with the markets uh, for the first half of this year. I think probably most of our readers know the basic setup. Uh, worst first six months for stocks in half a century, uh, inflation at a 40-year high, worst first six months for the bond market maybe ever, uh, and likewise for a balanced portfolio. Do you want to just kind of catch us up to where we are now eight months-ish into uh, the new year. I know we've had a bit of a bounce. There's talk about whether or not that's a bear market bounce or or the road to recovery. Where do you uh, kind of map us at this juncture? Yeah, I think that's the, the right question because there's there's the price action in the market and then there's the big picture. And, you know, um, taking our lead from Bill, we always start with the big picture, which is taking over decades, not just months or weeks or even years. And from that point of view, not much has changed since the first half of the year, or really since we started in January. And that that forecast or that that uh, prediction, if you will, is that the markets were extremely overvalued, mostly as a result of uh, interest rates that had been left way too low for way too long. And then uh, we expected lots of inflation because of both the fiscal policy, which is to say the stimulus spending from Congress, and then the support that um, the Fed gave to markets, which translated into higher consumer prices. There's, you know, there was a few other complicating factors like the result of the pandemic lockdowns and their impact on the supply chain. And um, that is a really important story for investors that, that the de-globalization that, uh, that the pandemic has kicked off is probably going to push inflation higher or keep it higher for longer than than we think the stock market expects but you know it was almost inevitable that after such a terrible first half of the year you would get some sort of recovery or bounce in markets so the question the really the important question is is that the end of the bear market or is it a, a bear market bounce or a rally and i, I think our view, and I speak for Tom as the investment director and, and Bill as well, is that uh, it 
it falls pretty squarely within the definition of a bear market rally, which is easy to say academically because you can look at it and say, well, the S&P's up by almost 20% from the June lows. Some of the more uh, aggressive growth-oriented indices and stocks like Apple, the NASDAQ, they're up more than that. So these are really challenging moves for investors looking at the long term because in the short term, you feel like I'm missing out and maybe I'm wrong. Um, but from our point of view, uh, nothing has changed technically or fundamentally to suggest that the primary trend in the markets is uh, still down. Mm-hmm. And so that's what our investment strategy is set up to address is how do you preserve your capital? How do you avoid the big loss? Uh, and how do you prepare for this stagflationary environment where you have sort of high prices that are sticky and lower stock prices? So there's a lot involved. There's interest yep. rates involved and real interest rates and things like that. But I'd say, um, you know, we got initial confirmation in the first half of the year that our macro thesis was spot on. And since then, we've seen sort of a counter cyclical uh, reaction in stock markets. You, you never want to blame, you never want to say the stock market is wrong. You never want to say that the price action is wrong just because it disagrees with your thesis. But I'd say, you know, based on the levels in the stock market right now, um, we're not we're not going to change our call about <laughs> where we think right. things are headed. So you mentioned uh, stagflation there and uh, prices both. We've got obviously financial asset prices on the one hand and then prices of just everyday goods and services that people consume on the other hand. Um, that's obviously a big part of the picture. What what do you say to people who make the case that, you know, um, inflation has peaked? And uh, you know, I heard somebody use the metaphor the other day that the, you know, the pig had moved through the Python. This massive six trillion dollars um, of of kind of giveaway cash is moving through the system, and now we're on the other side of that. Um, you know, what what do you say to to that argument? Yeah. I- I mean, I'd say it's wrong. I, I think there was <laughs> there's certainly an element that uh, inflation was exacerbated by kind of one-off factors, but that's that to me seems like the conventional explanation that it it came easily and it will go away easily. Mm-hmm. History suggests that's not the case. That uh, there's a lot of inertia once inflation uh, gets hold. And part of that is just monetary and then part of it's psychological but if you look at real interest rates so you you look at um, the fed funds rate adjusted for the inflation rate it's it's still negative and there's been a lot of it's around six percent maybe almost seven percent so you know markets seem to have gotten ahead of themselves in saying that uh, inflation will come down and the rate of interest rate increases will probably has probably already peaked as well so they might continue to go up by 50 basis points or 25 basis points but three percent is probably where the fed will stop and therefore it's okay to go buy growth assets again at really high premiums you know at the high price mm-hmm. to sales ratios high price to earnings ratios those ratios are down a little bit from last november but um they're still elevated based on their historic highs so things aren't cheap right now and they're not cheap either especially uh, if you think that we're headed toward either a recession or we've been in a recession or that we'll have stagflation. So you're pricing stocks for as if interest rates were going to be lower, uh, inflation was going to be lower and earnings were going to be higher. 
So to me, I, that's a very rosy scenario. And uh, the mm. risk, if you're wrong, is it, there's still another 30 to 50% drawdown out there for equity prices based on where they normally revert in a mean reverting crash. So again, I would look, what I've been looking at lately, Joel, is I've been looking at the credit markets, uh, especially if you look at uh, some of the junk bond exchange traded funds, those have started to roll over a little bit. And I say I say that because sometimes the credit markets are a little bit better indicator of uh, financial conditions than the stock market. So uh, I'd say people who think that the Fed is done raising rates and that inflation is going to come down quickly uh, are, are hoping that's the case, but but the, the historical evidence is that it's not the case. Mm. And you mentioned uh, real rates, uh, i.e. adjusted for inflation, and we're probably maybe something like 600 basis points behind the curve, uh, as they say. Uh, where historically, I think it was uh, it was Volcker who who jacked up rates to 600 basis points beyond the curve uh, to get inflation under control when it was at this <clears throat> roughly this level uh, 40 years ago. It, just sticking with uh, kind of real world adjusted prices uh, for a little bit. I know you've talked a, a lot about uh, real wages, for example, and just to get back to your. Uh, your observation then that a rosy outlook necessarily entails increased earnings for uh, corporations. I'm wondering how people who make the peak inflation argument are factoring in higher earnings when people's real, that is to say, uh, adjusted for inflation earnings are lower and going backwards, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, we both read the same people and we try to uh, keep up with I mean, it's an important thing to keep up with data, evidence, and arguments that could indicate that you've missed something or that you're wrong about something. But when you look at credit card debt exploding to its highest levels ever, the number of people taking out new credit cards, and then uh, you know the employment figures, they vary from month to month. They're volatile. Are they leading? Are they lagging? Are they even correct? You know, these are surveys. They're not necessarily... Uh, hyper-accurate counts of what's going on in the labor market. But if you look at the trends for real wages adjusted for inflation over time, um, those are easier to understand and they're easier to extrapolate. And, you know, that compared to what's going on with energy prices, with healthcare costs, with food prices, with the cost of rent, uh, with the cost of the existing homes and new homes, you know, those suggest that it's just harder than ever for normal people on a median wage and a middle-class salary, even even the rarest of things at home with two wage earners, a mother and father, who are both earning income, um, it's just the gap is getting bigger and bigger. So um, I don't, you know, I, I find it hard, I don't find it credible to think that there's gonna be a huge rebound from the consumer in the second half of this year that justifies paying higher prices for stocks right now. Now, there you, you talk about the stock market that we still look in mostly calm looks at individual companies where the setup is more favorable. So I think that's an important point to make is, you know, as an asset class, our view on stocks is mostly bearish. But part of our strategy is 
to own some of them anyway as part of a, a diversification approach mm-hmm. and to focus on companies that have pricing power, companies that don't have debt, uh, companies who for various reasons that are particular to their industry or to their management seem to be bucking the trend. It doesn't fully, you know, that doesn't hedge your risk that when you own stocks in a bear market, most stocks go down. But uh, Tom's actually been really, I say actually, he's been doing it his whole career. He's been pretty good at finding these little pockets of opportunity. And, um, you know, for, for new readers, or, or I think who would like to be more aggressive, we're, we're simply not going to do that. But we're not going to be aggressive on the short side because we're bearish and we're not going to be, um, we're not going to try and surf these rallies and time the market perfectly in and out. I think Tom's going to continue his sort of bottom up balance sheet analysis of companies that have a favorable setup and then trade them. And I say trade, I mean, you know, these are not long-term holds. We have mm-hmm. one long-term hold, which is our trade of the decade, but the, the other stuff is not meant to be held for years. It's uh, months or longer, but he'll be clear about all that when he, you know, when he sets them up. But yeah, it's, it's difficult because we, you know, we all have to do something with our money and it's hard to sit right. there and watch the market go up and wonder if you've missed something. But I don't think we have. I think we're, uh, we're on top of the macro trends and nothing has changed uh, in the first half of the year that would cause us to think uh, we're, we're missing the boat on this. Right. Well, let's uh, make that that transition then for uh, readers who are following along from uh, what you've outlined then as Tom's tactical trades. They're the these little pockets of the market where he sees a kind of perhaps an asymmetrical risk or uh, favorable winds blowing given a particular set of <clears throat> circumstances. But over the longer time frame, which is to say uh, the remainder of the decade, uh, we've set up the the trade of the decade, uh, as Bill has called it, and this is um, essentially long conventional energy sources, and there's a particular play on that for uh, for our readers. But um, do you want to kind of sort of set the backdrop there, and and maybe just talk about the slight collection, uh, the slight correction rather uh, in oil prices that has has uh, manifested over the past couple of months, and where we are with that. Yeah, sure. I mean, th- that's an important one because, uh, you know, if you want to do something, that's the simplest one to do. And, and I would encourage people to read that report, which we'll probably update before the end of the year, because when we put it out at the beginning of the year, uh, it was really based on two or three important ideas, none of which have changed. And in fact, they've all they've all gotten stronger in the, mm-hmm. to the extent that data has come out since then. I think it's confirmed what we said. So, you know, the, the first one was just purely driven by the price action in the energy sector over the last 10 years. And this is anyone who's familiar with the idea of the dogs of the Dow, that if you, you, know, you buy the worst performing Dow stocks from the last year, and they tend to be not always the best performing, but they rally, or you can buy the best performing stocks from the previous year. And you know the momentum investors would tell you, buy the best performing stocks from last year, because they're probably going to be the best performing stocks this year. The contrarian dogs of the Dow approach is to look for stuff that's done so poorly that it, that it can't get much worse. When it gets worse in the Dow, they just kick you out of the Dow anyways. <laughs> that's actually what happened with ExxonMobil. You know, we, were looking, we looked at both the size of the S&P energy sector as a percentage of the entire S&P 500 and the performance of that sector relative to things like financial stocks and tech stocks, especially. 
and it couldn't have gotten any worse. Well, I mean, I suppose it could have gotten any worse, but worse would have been the death of the coal industry and, you know, the death of the oil industry, which, funnily enough, some people were calling for at the end of last year. They were saying, uh, that's it. You know, oil's never going to reach 100 bucks again, and uh, it's uninvestable. I think Jim Cramer at one point said oil stocks are uninvestable. That's a, that's a great contrarian indicator for you right there. Yeah, and the magazine covers as well. The Economist had a lump of coal in the bell jar saying, I don't remember what it said, something like the end of coal. Yeah. But, you know, those are cultural indicators of, of what's going on with um, liquidity and asset allocation and investor sentiment. So it was under invested in from that point of view, but that was the first point that it was bound for uh, a rebound over the next 10 years compared to the previous 10 years. The second point was the, because of regulatory action, which was mostly hostile to fossil fuels, that the oil and gas company majors especially had dramatically reduced their capital investment in uh, exploration and in production. So that if demand recovered from the pandemic uh, drawdown, which you would expect it, it would recover at some point, then the industry was not in a position to rapidly increase oil and gas supply to keep up with recovered demand. And our idea there was that demand would grow. It would resume. And, in, and it did quickly. Uh, you had the added complicating factor of the war uh, in Ukraine with Russia and how disruptive that has been to energy supplies. And that's a big story, which we probably can't get into here. But the idea that that uh, you know energy is being deglobalized or it's being mm. politicized in a way that it hadn't before. But but the, the basic argument was just supply and demand, that the case... The case that fossil fuels were dead was overmade, and that even if you believed that we were moving to renewables in this energy transition, it would be uh, probably decades, not years, and certainly not months, and it wouldn't be seamless. So that was a favorable setup. And the third, which is probably a little more controversial, is that the very idea that we're, we're moving seamlessly to an energy transition where the internal combustion engine will be replaced by electric cars and uh, wind, solar, and renewables, hydro, will all eventually replace coal and gas. And we won't need nuclear is a pipe dream. It's a thermo thermodynamic pipe dream. And we're already seeing that, you know, the best, we didn't expect this at the time, but you know, I saw this morning that Germany has two months of natural gas reserves, thanks to its dispute with Russia. And that's a country and an economy that set themselves up uh, as if they would always be able to get cheap fossil fuels, but but switch miraculously to, to renewables. And you and Byron King have had a lot of really productive discussions on, on whether why that's not true uh, and what will happen if you make policy based on those assumptions. But on the investment side, we're, we're, our conclusion was that for those three reasons, the underperformance in the previous 10 years, the underinvestment in the capital required to increase supply, and the overemphasis on the energy transition in the, in the idea that everything would be green and electrified, that over the next 10 years, it would be hard to find a sector that's going to do better than oil and gas. And that you can probably ignore the, uh, the short-term price fluctuations. You know, people, 
We get that a lot from new readers saying, I didn't get into the trade when you made it. Is it too late? What we say is, you know, we'll revisit it from time to time to look at when is an attractive time to enter the trade. And that means there's going to be drawdowns. So, you know, we were up by over 130% at one point and then it came down and it goes back up. So the whole idea, Bill's idea of a trade of decade was you just didn't have to pay attention to any of that over 10 years. Find yourself an attractive entry point to the trade, put as much money in as you're comfortable losing, uh, and then forget about it. You know, don't agonize. And if you can't sleep because you've made an investment that's supposed to work over 10 years, then you probably, it might not be the right investment for you. So, yeah. Uh, but we'll update that report. Uh, but I think those three points are still in our favor. And if anything, I think the, 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 the decline in the oil price has been overdone. Uh, and it's an, that's an interesting issue, which I'll get into in a, in a weekly update in the next couple of weeks. But I wouldn't worry too much about the price action in the oil market. Yeah, I should uh, mention there that we recently unlocked uh, a transcript that we recorded uh, back in late December of 2021, uh, last year with uh, Bill's longtime friends, um, Rick Rule and Byron King. We had a really great discussion. Um, this was when we were just getting going with Bonner Private Research, and they were generous enough to uh, give us their insights on what would what was happening in the energy markets. And of course, obviously nobody could have foreseen the events in Eastern Europe unfolding as they did, but that served really just to exacerbate um, the the situation that they had uh, that they had seen there. So um, you can go on to, again, bonoprivateresearch.substack.com and check out that unlocked transcript. I'll put a link in the uh, in the notes below this show, but uh, Dan, we're almost out of time here, mate. I've just got one uh, little black swan type question. A, a few of our readers have written in asking, uh, possibly off the back of one of Tom's observation, his observations, he's been writing a little bit lately about the slowdown in China and uh, the bursting property market there. I think he, he noted that the Wall Street Journal had called uh, the Chinese property market the single biggest asset uh, class by value on the planet. And it's something in the order of $53 trillion or some just absolutely mind-boggling uh, number there. So given what's happening over there uh, in China, are you at all worried about being dragged into a global recession? What that uh, knock-on might have, you know, might look like with regards to oil prices? Or how does that kind of impact uh, the thesis? I know it's a it's a kind of a big question to end on, but no, it's, it's a great question. I mean, those are the things we were paid to think about and try to figure out ahead of time. And I think the uh, it, it sort of graduates in scope. Uh, if you want to start with the oil markets, if China's in a recession, or if they're locking down cities, or if the property market collapses, and or if there's disruption in their property market that causes slower economic growth, then that's going to impact their demand on oil. Um, they've also shut down a bunch of factories in different places. So I think it has impacted oil demand, which has, uh, has shown up in the oil price, which was something that, frankly, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't neglected to pay attention to because you just talk about the global oil market and you forget that there, there are some components of it that, are, that drive the price more than others. So that, I think, is something worth keep, keeping an eye on. I think the two other... Um, uh, to, to be concise, there are probably two other things we'd look at. One is is uh, financial stability in China, and 
and how that plays into whether China has a, you know, as an alternative to the dollar or the truth is China's capital market is still mostly closed to the rest of the world. So, you know, they could have a property collapse and, they could, and their banks could collapse, uh, but the government would absorb those losses or they transfer them uh, to someone else in the system. That doesn't mean it wouldn't have a, a domestic impact. You know, when people have money that they think is in a bank account and it turns out that it's in an investment product mm-hmm. and they can't get that money, then uh, that makes people upset. And, you know, we see some of those stories, probably not as much as we should, but I think that's a, also a cautionary tale for for investors in the West and in the United States is that, you know, money in the bank, yeah, I mean, it's FDIC insured, so I don't want to suggest that, that it could be seized like that, but, you know, that's that's what can happen. But So China's capital markets aren't ready for prime time. It's not going to replace the dollar or the U.S. bond market anytime soon. But I think the highest level about instability in China economically is how it plays into their strategy with regard to Taiwan and challenging the United States militarily. And we didn't have to talk about those things because basically from when China entered the World Trade Organization in 2000 until the beginning of the pandemic, there was what we call the symbiotic relationship between China and the United States where China exported goods to the U.S., generated huge uh, trade surpluses, which it reinvested in its own economy to build its infrastructure, to re-migrate about 500 million people from the countryside to the cities. That's done. You know, it's not entirely done. In fact, it may have been overdone in, in terms of the amount of investment they made in real estate to resettle those people. But if you have an economy where the voters, well, they don't really vote, but if you've got people that are unhappy because they're not sure their money is safe anymore and you've got a conflict with Taiwan and you're trying to decide whether the Russian war in Ukraine gives you an opportunity to conduct a military operation that the U.S. might not be able to resist. Those are all things that, you know, those are, they're not black swans because we can talk about them. Mm -hmm. Black swan would be something we just didn't even think about um, and, and weren't prepared for. We know that there's a possibility for military conflict in East Asia. We don't know if it'll be the North Koreans. We don't know if it would be the Chinese. We have no idea if China would suddenly say, you know what, we're, we're not worried about our economic situation anymore. We're going for territorial acquisition, maybe as a way to dis- distract our people from our crashing economy. As you said, China's property market is something like 300% of GDP. So it's it's a massive sector which has suffered from massive inflation. So uh, it's it's one of those you have to keep your eye on because it, you know when you take your eye off it, that's when it's most likely to to blindside you literally because you we're all paying attention to semantic debates over what a recession is or over wh- where interest rates will top out. And in the meantime, you've got this you know giant lumbering economy. Um, that may be in crisis mode it's in, and they're making noises about a conflict. So yeah, it's an excellent question and um, we'll be covering it more for the rest of the year for sure. Excellent. All right. Well, just on the, on the uh, subject of recession, obviously Dan, uh, the correct definition uh, is a recession is only a recession if it comes from the recession uh, province in France. Otherwise it's just a sparkling economic gut punch. Um, 
Mate, uh, your readers, our readers, Bonner Private Research readers are going to be able to catch all of your weekly updates every Friday. Uh, Tom writes to our readers every Wednesday. So uh, please be on the lookout, members, for those uh, for those weekly, twice-weekly updates. Uh, and again, as I said, it's bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. Check out the dollar report, the strategy report, trade of the decade report, uh, and all the transcripts that we post from our special uh, private summits, the latest of which uh, Bill convened a roundtable to ask our uh, panel, uh, nine guests, two very simple questions. That is to say, what is going on in the markets and what are you doing with your personal money? So we had a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of newsletter veterans, many of whom our readers would recognize, Alex Green, Porter Stansbury, uh, Doug Casey, uh, Byron, yourself, Tom, uh, Rick Rule, and uh, others besides, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, Jim Rickards. Anyway, it was, a, it was a really, it was a really all-star uh, lineup. Obviously not everyone agreed because we had, you know, nine different people looking at different sectors of the market and trying to keep their eyes on this huge, uh, you know, this, this huge global uh, setup. So anyway, lots and lots of really interesting thoughts there. So again, head over to the Substack page and readers will be able to uh, check that out. And uh, in the meantime, Dan, uh, keep safe up there in Laramie, mate, and uh, we'll catch up again very shortly.